I'm going to ask you a question as we get going today. You ever had somebody do something to you that you just thought, I just don't know that I could ever get over that? I don't know that I could ever forgive that. I don't know that I could ever let them off the hook for that. Have you ever had somebody that's been on the verge of something and you thought, well, if they did that, I don't think I could ever forgive them. Or you've heard about somebody that did something to someone else and you said, you know what, if they did that to me or they did that to my spouse or they did that to my kids or they did that to my parents, I could never forgive them. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Because today what we're going to talk about is something that I believe inhibits, prevents Christians from living the life that they've been called to live. It's almost like this is one of those subjects that gets us stuck. That we can't move, that it doesn't quite fit. And there are lots of people in our country, lots of people in our churches who have something in their lives where it's just not all connecting. Where they hear this preacher every week, where they go to church on a regular basis, where they're listening to even Christian music, where they're talking about Christian things, but it's not clicking, it's not coming together. Something has got it stuck. I was thinking about it this week when I had a a battle with an old nemesis of mine. This. Let me just say from the front end, all right, we've advanced major ways in technology over the last 50 to 75 years. And for the most part, Coke machines are exactly the same, right? I mean, you would think there'd be some high tech way we could do this now. But no, we we put our money in, which obviously this is not a new one because I don't know if you can see this back there, but it's 50 cents there. So it's not a new one. This is an older one, all right? But... Everybody, you ever had one of those moments when you put your money in, you push the button, you're excited about this effervescent goodness that is coming down the chute, and you push the button and it gets stuck. Now what do you do when the coat gets stuck in the machine? You kick it, you beat it, you hit it, you shake it. Like we all do the same thing, right? By the way, anybody here ever done that to other appliances? Like, how many of you remember when, when the TV reception wasn't coming in real well, you whacked it on the side, right? How many of you remember that? How many of you think that's the craziest idea you've ever heard, right? Like, now, like, our TVs now, like, kids can't get near it, like, right? Like, don't, don't touch it, don't get near it, it might destroy the whole thing, it might fall over, they're super thin. Like, you remember they used to build, like, cabinets, like, TV cabinets, right? And I remember that it was a sign of maturity for me when my dad told me, go up there and whack the TV. Like, that was a privilege in our house, right? Like, it's a little shaky, go whack it. Well, when you had the Coke machine, it gets stuck in there. You start hitting it, you start punching it, hoping that it shakes free and you get that effervescent goodness of what you've paid for, right? There are a lot of Christians who have put effort in, that have begun to do things that have really think that they're walking the way God wants them to, but there's something that's not quite right, and it's stuck. And what we're going to talk about today is one of those issues that I believe shakes us. It's one of those things that sometimes punches us, that smacks us, that says to us, are you really where you need to be with the Lord? Because there are a lot of people that come 
We know about it. We hear about it. We think about it. We talk about it. And it just never drops. It just never comes. That place from the head to the heart to our life just never happens. And week after week after week after week, you hear sermon after sermon after sermon, Bible study after Bible study, song after song. You sing the lyrics, you're here, but it's not clicked inside. And you can't say that God's got complete control of your life. We're going to talk about something today. We're in the midst of this series called Amnesty, talking about the power of forgiveness. In the last two weeks, we've really talked about the need we all have for forgiveness in our lives, specifically through the story of Peter being reinstated with Jesus at the end, after the resurrection, before Jesus returns to the Father, at the end of the book of John. But today, we're going to talk about... a different kind of understanding of forgiveness we're going to transition from our need for forgiveness to our need to give forgiveness and what we're going to understand what i hope we see at the end of this is that this is one of those things that either makes everything drop into place or is evidence that it has and when you leave here today i have a sentence that i want you to remember now, here's the thing. I'm doing this partly because it can be discouraging when you spend 45 minutes up here talking and you go out in the hall and you hear somebody ask somebody, hey, what was the sermon about today? Uh, God or something. Sin, something, love. God loves us, I think. So I'm going to give you the study question before we even start, all right? Are you ready? Apparently not. Nobody's ready. Here it is, all right? When a person truly grasps in their heart how they have been freely forgiven by God at great cost to himself, it compels that person to freely forgive other people even if it's at great cost to them. All right? Y'all think y'all get that by the end? We're going to do it one more time, all right? When a person truly grasps in their heart how they have been freely forgiven by God at great cost to himself, it compels that person to freely forgive other people even if it's at great cost to them. So when I walk out in the hallway and I say to you, what was the sermon about today? I expect this to be repeated back to me. Good luck with that, right? All right, what if we simplify it a little bit? What if we go to this, all right? Forgiven people forgive. Is that better? It, if y'all, we can put the other one back up if you want to. Is this better? Forgiven people forgive. Now, here's what I want you to know. That's an important statement, and the words are chosen specifically. It doesn't say forgiven people might forgive. It doesn't say forgiven people should forgive. It doesn't say forgiven people can forgive. There is no modifier to the word forgive. It just simply states, forgiven people forgive. And that's because that's what Scripture tells us. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at a story today where Jesus gives us that statement. Forgiven people forgive. He's reminding us of the importance of forgiveness in our lives and how we ought to extend it to other people. And he uses a powerful parable to do it, a powerful story to do it. And what we're going to see in the book of Matthew chapter 18, we're going to see that forgiveness is more than just letting something go. 
We're going to see that Jesus is very concerned about whether or not we're forgiving other people. We're going to take a look at what happens if we don't forgive. We're going to talk about how we struggle with forgiveness, why we struggle with forgiveness, and then we're going to talk about how to do it. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter, this is our same guy, Peter, Peter, who we've been talking about the last two weeks, was forgiven by Jesus at the end of his life. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times. Now, here's what I want you to know about that just real quickly. Peter is trying to be the head of the class. Because in Jewish society, in Jewish law, in Jewish religious practice, you were expected to forgive someone three times for premeditated sin against you. Three. And Peter's saying, Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive? This is like the kid in your class that asks the teacher a question and wants the teacher to know how much he already knows. Hey, teacher, I was just wondering as I was reading this passage about how really well the teacher, you know, how you explained this to us last week and how I could see the author's intent and just wondered if you could shed a little more light on that now that I've seen what's there. Peter says, hey, Jesus, (laughs) I'll do it seven times. Now, before we jump too hard on Peter, we have a couple of sayings in our culture that show that we don't even like to go to the third time. Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on who? Me, right? You know what that means? It ain't happening a third time. Like I gave you two chances. The first time you should have known better. The second time I should have known better. It ain't happening a third time. We'll forgive you twice. We're not going to seven. Jesus says, not seven, but... Seventy times seven. Every time we reference this particular scripture, anytime we talk about this particular passage, I feel that I'm obligated to say this does not mean that you keep a record in your um, journal uh, for 490 times. And when you hit 491, you go, well, that's it. You're out of chances. Jesus's point is, Peter, you're way low. Like you just keep on forgiving. And then he tells them this parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. That's a lot of money, all right? 10,000 talents was brought before him. He goes on to say, Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, then I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, not nearly as much. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, just like previously, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. 
When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then it finishes up saying this. And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now here's one thing I want you to understand as we're getting ready to to talk about this passage for just a moment. It's always important to understand who Jesus is telling the story to. Like it's important to understand that when he's telling the story of the lost sheep or the prodigal son, that he's talking to Pharisees who are complaining because the tax collectors and the sinners are coming to him. And he's telling the Pharisees, God's more excited about these sinners that are coming to you and celebrating what is happening in their lives than he is when you just keep doing what you're doing. And in this passage, it's all it's understanding that we have to have is that he is speaking not to the Pharisees, not to the sinners, not to the tax collectors, but to his disciples. And so he's speaking to the church. Now, here's what I want to tell you. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a part of First Baptist Goodlettsville, you're not considering yourself part of this family, then in some ways you're off the hook today. You can just sit and see if we're doing what we say we're supposed to be doing. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is for you. This is not for somebody on your row. This is not for the people across the room. It's not for the person that you already got in your mind that should have been here to hear the message today. This is for you. And what we want to see in this passage is that forgiveness is at the essence of who we are and what we display of God's love. And the first thing that has to do before we can even talk about this passage is ask the question, what do we mean when we talk about forgiveness? Because we may have 14 ideas of what forgiveness is. Then at the end of the message, if we say we need to go forgive people and you don't really understand what biblically forgiveness looks like or we don't have an understanding of what forgiveness is, then it really isn't helpful to anybody. As the most basic definition means that we just let go. I thought it was interesting in the video we saw, the video testimony that she said that there came a point in her life when she just simply had to let go. And there is that picture you saw in the video at the beginning of that releasing, of that letting go, of getting it out, of saying to them, you are no longer having a hold on me. There is this concept of letting go. But biblical forgiveness has much deeper ideas than that. In fact, I saw this quote this week from a guy who wrote it over 300 years ago, but I love the way he said what forgiveness is. His name is Thomas Watson. He's a pastor from over 300 years ago. But here's what he said. He says, we forgive others, and then he gives what forgiveness is. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but we wish well to them, we grieve with their calamities, we pray for them, we seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. See, forgiveness is more than just I'm letting go. I'm saying it's, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. It is now seeking the good for the person that did it. It's not wishing harm. 
It's grieving when harm comes. It's praying for them. It's attempting reconciliation. It doesn't mean that they'll agree and that reconciliation happen. But as far as it is with you, you try to live at peace with all people and you try to be reconciled with them. And you show yourselves ready on all occasions to help. Forgiveness is more than just saying, I don't have to deal with it anymore. I'm going to let it go because I don't want to have to worry about it. It is a complete change of attitude towards the person. Now, here's the thing. The reason we know that is because that's exactly what Christ has done for us on the cross. When he forgave us, when he took God's wrath and God's sin upon him, he changed the disposition that God could have and does have towards his people. God now hopes for us, wishes for us, loves us. We who were his enemies are now his family. That's also just as important to say some things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. Do you know how hard it is to forget something? When somebody's done something to you? Now, I'm not talking about what you're supposed to get at the grocery when you're walking down the aisle. I'm talking about stuff, life. God has given us powerful memories. In fact, um, I told First Service this. In my planning all week, I thought about this Coke machine idea. I was going to share it. It was a good idea. I put the Coke machine up in the First Service, and immediately, for whatever reason, I hadn't thought about it all week. I hadn't thought about it in 30 years. I immediately thought of the Coke machine at Riggs Hardware Store in Dyersburg, Tennessee that sold Cokes for five cents that I would go down with my dad in the glass bottles and get. Now, why in the world is that still there? By the way, I was also told last week that when I talk about Dyersburg, I slip into an accent a little bit. I'm sorry, all right? Can't can't get the Dyersburg out of the boy. It just happens, okay? There's no practical reason for me to remember Riggs, which shut down 30 years ago, the hardware store and the Coke machine there. But it's there. And when people do things to us, we're not going to necessarily forget. Forgiveness means that we choose not to count the offense against them. That's what Scripture says about God. It says He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, and He chooses to remember them no more. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger towards sin. It's not denying that they did something wrong. It's not a a, a denial of the longing for justice. It's not ignoring the fact that sin has been committed. It's not saying that what you did was okay. It's just saying that I'm not going to choose to hold it against you. It's not putting yourself in a position to be hurt again and again and again. Forgiveness is usually not a one-time event. It usually crops up and you have to again choose not to hold it against them. Again, long for their good. Again, pray for them. Again, seek reconciliation. So what does this passage tell us about that kind of forgiveness? Well, the first thing we see here is in the question that Peter asked the Lord is that our forgiveness should be unlimited. Peter approached him and said, how many times, Lord? Seven? Like Peter expected Jesus to go, oh, no, seven, that's too much, Peter. Like, like I was thinking five or six. Like the law says three. Do, do like one more. Go four or five. Peter did not expect Jesus to say 70 times seven or as many times as you are offended. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean you keep putting yourself back into a situation. If someone is abusing you or hurting you or doing, you don't put yourself back in. But if they choose to continue to do things, you forgive them. Our forgiveness should be unlimited. The second thing you see in this passage is that the model of forgiveness is God's forgiveness for us. And what this parable emphasizes is that no one can offend you as much as you have offended God. No one can hurt you as much as your sin hurt God. Now he gives that in the description of the money. He tells us that one guy came and he owed, the first man owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, if you want to know what that means, a talent was 6,000 denarii, which really doesn't help you a whole lot, does it? So a denarius was one day's labor. So you're looking at 6,000 days labor times 10,000. Or if you want to get technical about it, he owed somewhere around 200,000 years of a normal man's wages. But it's really more than that because here's the idea. In their day and time, a talent was the largest amount of money you could describe. I don't know what that would be today. Trillion, billion, zillion, whatever the largest amount of money you can describe, that's what a talent was. And 10,000 was the largest number in the Greek numerical system. And so Jesus says one man owed the most money you can imagine Times the biggest number we have. It was an infinite amount of money he owed. The point is, it is unfathomable how much this guy owed. It was ridiculous. It was unpayable. My favorite part of this whole story, and it's a, it's a weird part to be your favorite part. My favorite part of this whole story is when he goes to him and says, you owe me 10,000 talents. Somewhere in the billions or trillions of dollars, if you do the math on it, you owe me that. And the guy goes, just give me a little time. I'll pay it all back. Right? I mean, it's an incomprehensible amount of money for us. Um, this week, um, we were sitting around the, the table at the house eating supper. One of those nights that we cherish where family gets around and we're eating um, together. And we have a new member of our family. I think I've told you about her, Stella. We have a dog. Um, we love her. She's part of our family. She's a little Maltese and um, precious. And, and uh, I mentioned last week that some of our family had been sick. In fact, um, we almost hit the jackpot and had everybody sick at the same time. That's when it's really fun, right? But we had, like, all of our kids have been sick in some form in the last couple of weeks, including Stella, right? So Stella got a little bug, something going on. And so we had to take our first trip to the vet with Stella. Susan took her. Girls wanted to go, you know, support group for Stella, I guess. And uh, they're there, and of course, they need to figure out what's going on with Stella. So we're doing blood tests, and uh, we're getting um, special cans of food that, you know, we have to have for the special diet. And we have medicine. We have an antibiotic that she has to take and um, some um, other medicine to stop what was happening with the stomach issue. All right? And so we get all this medicine, we get all the thing, and here's the thing about vets. When you haven't had a dog in a while, you forget and don't really put into the budget how much those little trips to the vet cost, right? So that was an exciting moment for us all to uh, 
participate in that. And so we're sitting around the table and we're eating something and the girls decide they want to start, and Eli, want to give Stella some food off the table. Now we've just had Stella at the vet for digestive issues and we are on special food and medicine for this. And my opinion about them giving them some food off the table was, no, let's don't do that, all right? And so I have to think of a way to explain this to my kids that we need to think about this in a little more logical way. And I just, the only thing that comes out is because I'm a dad and this is what dads do is like, we just spent a couple hundred dollars getting that dog's stomach fixed. We're not going to give her some food off the table. To which Maddie says, I didn't even know we had that much money. Right? To Maddie, there's this inconceivable 200. Well, we do have maybe that, all right? But it's not budgeted, but it's there, all right? Just inconceivable amount of money. And the point of this parable is that the first, the first servant owed an unexplainable, grossly or extravagant amount of money that he could never repay. Can I tell you the issue most of us have with forgiving other people in our lives is that we don't have any clue about how much forgiveness we needed from God. No clue. You see, if we were to understand, and the point of this parable to the disciples that are sitting there, to Peter who's asked, Jesus, how much do we have to forgive? Is seven times enough? He is like, Peter, you have no idea the amount of forgiveness that you require. And that the cost that is in your debt, the, what you owe God, is inconceivable in its amount. Because you have sinned against an holy infinitely good God and so your sin is infinitely bad and so the point of this is not to figure out to the decimal how much money the guy owed the point is you can't count it and neither can you and most of us have no concept of how badly we needed forgiveness from God this week I read the story of one of uh, one of the products that has become standard in home cleaning and things that people do around the house, but it almost didn't survive. And it's a fascinating story. It's the story of this little uh, spray called Febreze. How many here have ever used Febreze? Right? Okay. I don't know if you know this, but Febreze was discovered by accident. A guy was working the Procter and Gamble lab, and uh, he was a smoker, and his wife hated it. And he came home one day from working in the lab, and he was working with this chemical, and his wife said, "Um, did you stop smoking? And he got really excited, and he was like, no, why? She goes, you don't smell like smoke at all. And he discovered that the chemical he was working with was actually taking the odors out. And so he decided, hey, this might be a good product. I mean, this would be good. And so they started marketing that way. In fact, the first Febreze was odorless. didn't have any odor to it at all, and it removed odors. You could spray it on anything, and the, the chemical makeup would remove the odor, and it'd be gone. They started marketing. They sent it to a bunch of housewives to try out, and they saw the sales start out pretty good and then steadily decline until the point that they were getting ready to pull it off the market. And so they hired a group of people because they invested millions of dollars in this and said, we got to figure out what's going on. 
And they sent them to all these people that they had sent samples to and just asked them, are you still using the product? Why did you stop? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And they got a, a wake-up call one day when they went to Phoenix, Arizona, and they walked up to a house, and they said you could smell the nine cats in the house from outside. And they walked, knocked on the door, walked in, and there was this woman who had an immaculate house. She vacuumed every day. She wouldn't open the windows because it allowed dust from the outside in. Everything was in its place, and they couldn't help but notice in this immaculate house, there was this distinctive cat smell. And so they asked her about her house, and they were like, yeah, 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 that's, that's good. And then they said, um, do you ever have a problem with the cat smell? And she goes, oh, no, no, not really, like maybe once a month. And they were like, oh, like once a month. Like, um, like, when's the last time you think you smelled it? She said, oh, probably three or four weeks ago. She didn't know where her Febreze was because she hadn't needed it. And they said, well, like, do you smell it like now? She goes, no, it smells good in here. And they said it almost knocked them down when they walked in. And they said the problem with the early marketing of Febreze is that people didn't realize how bad the smells around them really were. Now, when I read that, you know what I thought immediately? Why do you talk about the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own? We don't realize how much we are in constant need of forgiveness. And Jesus' point to Peter is, you're asking about seven times, Peter, You've been forgiven 70 times 7 today. We don't understand our own stench. And then the parable says, what it shows is that our pride and our hubris and our confidence in ourselves won't let us forgive because we forget what we've been forgiven of. Jesus is a masterful storyteller. And he he does this thing where he tells this story and he has everybody feeling good. Like, oh man, that's an awesome story. I feel so good for that servant. I'm so thankful for the master. That is awesome. And then he turns it real quick and says, and then the guy went out. He saw a guy that owed him. Now listen, a hundred wasn't an insignificant amount. That was significant that was owed. A hundred days labor is significant. A third of your annual salary is significant. So it's not that this was an insignificant amount. It is significant, but what he's saying is the point that they hear is compared to the 10,000 talents, it is nothing. Now my brain kind of works in weird ways sometimes. Really, I expected a couple of amens there, all right? I mean, my brain works in weird ways sometimes. And I've told, I've told a couple people on the staff this. For some reason, when I read this story a, a couple of months ago, I was preparing for something else, thinking about something else. The image I got in my mind, and this may be a terrible image. If it is, just try to forget it and never think about it again, all right? Um, the image that I got in my mind was this story being told almost in like a, a, a mid-afternoon talk show format. Like Jerry or Maury or whatever it is that is on in the afternoons now. 
And if you imagine, okay, so you got a host sitting here. you got your imagination caps on for a minute. you got a host sitting here, and you got two people sitting there. You've got the master and the guy that's forgiven of the huge debt. And they're telling this story, and the crowd out there is like, oh, that's awesome. And the applause sign goes off, and telling all about it. And then the host goes, and after the break, we have a surprise guest for everyone here. So everybody's feeling good at the first break, right? This guy's been forgiven a debt. The master, they hug on stage. My life has never been the same since you did that. I'm so thankful for you. Everybody's all good. And then after it all, they bring out a picture or a video frame of a guy in shackles in jail. And they say, now, why don't you tell us who this is? And somebody, a brother or sister of the guy comes out and says, this is the man that he put in jail because he owed him a little bit of money. And the crowd goes nuts, right? No, he didn't. Like, nuts. Right? Crazy. People explode. They're yelling and screaming. How could you do that? Why did you do that to him? What's going on with that? And the host is all riled up and everybody's like, what? I can't believe that. Because it's so ridiculous to think that would happen. Jesus, in telling this story, builds it up and then says, If you aren't forgiving your brother every time he sins against you, you're like the guy who's been forgiven of more money than you can imagine that somehow, somehow holds it against somebody else what they've done to him. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And then he tells them there are consequences. Now, in the story, the guy gets put in prison. The point Jesus is making is that there are consequences in our lives when we choose not to forgive because it displays that we do not understand what God has done for us. The consequences in our lives are that it disgraces our almighty God. It discourages the people around us that are the people of God. It delights the enemy of God. It drives away those that are lost and seeking the Lord because they see the way we act. And it destroys your life. Harboring unforgiveness is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. And that's not just biblical fact, that's scientific medical fact. That one of the most harmful things you can have in your life is unforgiveness. It will destroy your body, it will destroy your spirit, it will destroy your mind. And yet, many of us in this room harbor unforgiveness towards people and we think it affects them in some way. And all you're doing is tearing down your own life. Last night I was scrolling through Twitter when I saw one of the greatest pictures and captions that I can remember. That was great because it was a picture and it wasn't actually happening in my house. All right. But it's from CBS News. And here it is right here. Put I brought it. All right. Now, this is a possum with some sort of clothing on that. I'm not real sure why a possum has clothing on. All right. But look at the headline from CBS News. A man trying to scare away opossums. By the way, you know that means they're from the north because nobody down here calls them opossums. They're just possums. All right, they're just possums. A man trying to scare away opossums by setting a fire has accidentally destroyed his house. 
So when you read the story, it's a guy in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that had possums in his yard and he was upset about it. So he set a brush fire to scare the possums away and it jumped and burned down his house completely. Now, I don't feel good for that guy. That's a bad thing, right? But it's a perfect picture of what people who hold on to unforgiveness are trying to do. They're trying to scare the other person away and they're burning down their own house. By the way, at the end of the story, the last line of this story is the man also has a problem with bees. I don't know what he's going to do about that, but he's got opossum problems, right? And what happens in your life and mine when we hold to unforgiveness is that we burn down our own house. Hebrews twelve fifteen. Nobody's ever transitioned to that from a possum picture, but here it is. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and my it may become, many become defiled. So here's the question. Because what we said at the beginning is true. What we see in this parable is true. Forgiven people forgive. The one statement you're supposed to remember as you leave today is simply that. Forgiven people forgive. And the question that I have for you today is, who do you need to forgive? Now, maybe you're here and you've never accepted the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. You know the beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that first story about the master who forgave his servant is exactly what the gospel is all about. That you and I have a debt because of our sin before God. We have been separated from eternal God by the sin in our lives. And we can do nothing about it. And we can act like we can pay it back. And there are religions all over the world that tell you you can pay it back. But there is no way you can ever pay the debt that you owe to God for the sin in your life. But when you come to God and say to Him, I need your mercy. I need your grace. Forgive me for my sins. Our God Every time, remember what we read in the beginning near the offering time, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you call on the name of the Lord and say, forgive me, Lord, for the sin in my life, he does. Now, there's some of you in this room that may need that. Now, it's the first step. You can't forgive other people until you've been forgiven. Not in a biblical way. But for those of us in this room that have been forgiven, that have accepted Jesus Christ, Who do you need to forgive? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. I'm going to stand down at the front. The band's going to come and play. And here's, I want you to listen to me. Because sometimes I say that and I know the packing up and the mind change starts to happen. Listen to me here. There's some of you in this room today that the reason that your life is not what God has called it to be is because you're like that Coke stuck in the machine. And what God wants to do is to use a relationship, a moment of forgiveness in your life for someone else to shake that free and to change your life. And I would hate for you to walk out of here today and miss an opportunity for that. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a church member. Maybe it's somebody in authority, a teacher or a principal. And again, it's not saying what they did. If they hurt you, if they harmed you, it's not saying it's okay. What it's saying is I'm not going to let that have control over me anymore. There's some of you in this room that need to today take a step. And I believe that God honors when people take a step. And by that, I mean you need to come and pray here at the front. This is an altar to the Lord because it is a place where you can meet with God. And you bring that to the Lord and you lay it at his feet and you say, Lord, I want to forgive. And then begin to walk in obedience to what he tells you. 
If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, your Savior, and you'd like to talk about that, you want to know about that forgiveness, you are like that servant that owes more than you can imagine, then I would love to talk to you about that. We're going to have a time of response. I'll be standing down here. The front is open for prayer. But I'm going to ask you to respond if the Lord leads. Let's pray together.